longer than one year ago, October 2016, uh, Pope Francis pay, paid a visit to Lund, Sweden, for a joint ecumenical service uh, commemorating the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in Sweden, together with Protestant Lutheran bishops and leaders, and uh, in a kind of ecumenical setting, praising and uh, cheering for this new phase in church history, no longer determined and shaped by controversy, but rather shaped by friendship, fellowship, and unity. I want to talk about this even also because Pope Francis, before becoming Pope, he became Pope in 2013, but uh, before becoming Pope, he wrote a book on the history of the Jesuits back in the 80s, when he was director of a Jesuit school in Buenos Aires, Argentina, even before becoming a bishop, and then archbishop, and then eventually a pope. He was a teacher in a Jesuit school. You all know that Pope Francis belongs to the Jesuit order. And the Jesuit order, founded by Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century, was founded in order to fight against the spread of the Reformation in 16th century Europe. The Catholic Church had different ways of reacting against the, the Protestant Reformation. One way was to encourage the formation of orders, companies of men, groups of people dedicated to undermine the strengths of the Reformation, trying to understand the secrets of the Reformation and to give them and transform them into tools and weapons for the Catholic Church to regain territory and influence in Europe. And uh, the, Jesuit, the Jesuits, founded by Ignatius of Loyola, understood that the Reformation uh, was winning the game because of two main strengths. One was scholarship. Protestants, the Protestant reformers were preachers of the word, but were also scholars uh, of the word. They were intellectual people. They were students of the word. And the basic average Catholic priest could not stand the scholarship of these uh, reformers. So they understood that in order to counteract and uh, uh, regain influence in Europe, they, the Catholic Church needed to invest in scholarship. And the Jesuit order was specifically uh, given the task of training not only the clergy, but also the laity, the, um, the, the princes, the kings, royal families, intellectuals, the governors, the rulers of Europe, in order not to be impressed and seduced by Protestant teaching. And uh, the other thing was that, uh, linked to that, uh, linked to scholarship, was that the reformers uh, rightly understood the importance of education. 
importance of training, the importance of educating the church by way of uh, teaching the need for all Christians to have access to the Word of God. Of course, to listen to it when it is preached in the church, but also to read it in homes, around the table, in family settings, in order for the Word to, uh, to be known by everybody uh, at different levels, in different ways, but exposing the people to the Word of God. And so the Jesuit order also invested a lot in establishing schools at different levels, different degrees from uh, elementary levels to adult education, educating the Catholic people uh, to, uh, and, and train them in Catholic teaching in order to be ready to reject Protestant influences. So this is the first time in history that a pope, that is the ultimate chief authority of this hierarchical institutional church named the Catholic Church, the first time in history that a pope is also a Jesuit. The Jesuit order was founded in order to fight against the Reformation. And now, after five centuries, we have a Jesuit pope at, uh, at the top of the Catholic Church. Now, there are differences. The present pope is not, doesn't seem to be a fighter. He is a smiling pope. He seems to be a kind person. And probably, possibly, he is a kind person. He doesn't appear as being an enemy to the Reformation. Quite the contrary. He seems to be embracing Martin Luther, although in technical Catholic language, this year they're not celebrating the Reformation because celebrating means feasting, cheering, endorsing the legacy of the Reformation, and that's too much for the Catholic Church. They are talking about commemorating the, 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 the Protestant Reformation. That is, remembering it, but not necessarily endorsing it. So that's the difference between commemoration and celebration. They are commemorating, but not celebrating. But he has <clears throat> been quite outspoken in uh, talking about Luther as being a brother as being a child of the church, as being a person who uh, had uh, uh, good reasons to raise concerns in the 16th century. He talked about Luther being a theologian that needs to be heard in our context, although he, was, uh, he, he, he went too far and he was too one-sided and he was too impatient not to wait for the Catholic Church to grasp what he was saying and to deal with it properly. But now Pope Francis is saying that after Vatican II, the Catholic Church has heard what Luther has said. And in its own way, perhaps not repeating word by word what Luther taught, five centuries ago, in its own way, in its own phraseology, in its own language, in its own uh, way of doing things, the Catholic Church has heard 
the two main cries of the Reformation, back to Scripture and salvation by grace alone. And Vatican II is seen as the final uh, recognition of the Catholic Church of the two main points of the Reformation recast in Catholic context and in Catholic language. Now, having said that, we have also to remember that Pope Francis, before becoming Pope in the 80s, wrote one book, little book, on the history of the Jesuits. That was and is the only published work that he wrote before becoming Pope. You know, the previous Pope, before Pope Francis was elected as a Pope, was Pope Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. And by the way, that's another unique feature of our times. We have two living Popes. No? Pope Benedict is still emeritus, but still living. And Pope Francis is the reigning Pope. It, it has never happened in the last uh, five centuries that we have had two living popes at the same time. Normally, a pope is elected when the previous one is gone. But this time, the previous pope resigned and the new one was elected. Now, when Pope Benedict was elected, he was a, a world-known theologian, one of the most published man in the world. He was a, a respected scholar and a theologian. But when Pope Francis was elected, I remember sitting in the press room uh, of the Vatican uh, and the people there, the journalists, the, the people who were writing articles, uh, looking around saying, where has he come from? What has he published? And the answer was nothing. Is not an academic, is not a scholar. He doesn't have a pedigree or a history of being a scholar, but there was only one book that was published before becoming Pope on the history of the Jesuits. And there in the 80s, uh, the then uh, Father Bergoglio wrote very harsh and negative things about Martin Luther and even more negative words on Calvin. Blaming Luther and Calvin of having destroyed the Western Church, having uh, separated God from the people, having uh, taken away God from the people, having removed the church from the uh, horizon, European context, and blaming them of being schismatics as well as heretics. Now, this book is the only published work that the present Pope has ever published before becoming Pope. And yet he is known as the most smiling, embracing, affirming, friendly Pope. He has never said a word about the work that he had published 30 years ago. But, and yet he is on record. And actually it has been republished in Spanish after becoming Pope. It has been translated into Italian and French. 
But most people don't know that in the back of his mind, not only as a Jesuit, and so belonging to the order that was founded to fight against the Reformation in trying to fight against it in its own terms, trying to gain the secrets of the Reformation in order to disguise them into ways of fighting against it. And very few people know this, but that's part of what uh, the present Pope is, uh, is doing. He is a smiling person, he is an affirming person, but in the back of his mind, he still has these very harsh assessments of Luther and Calvin and the Reformation as a whole. So how do we assess what he is saying now in terms of his apparently friendly tone and appreciation of the Reformation, Brother Martin, child of the church, and 30 years ago, schismatic, heretic, blaming him of all the evils of present-day Western culture, tracing all the evils that we face now, relativism, postmodernity, um, um, tyrannical nationalism, communism, Nazism, tracing all these evils of present-day Western culture, tracing back to the Reformation, tracing them back to the Reformation. And now is saying, no, no, Luther was Brother Martin. He was a child of the church. He was a good man. And we have now learned the lesson that he wanted to teach us. We have to, we need to have a better understanding of the complexity of the man and of what he's saying. Now, when it comes to justification, he is uh, on record in saying that now the church, the Catholic Church endorses justification by faith. And so we have to understand what does it mean. Is Rome committed to grace alone? Now, grace alone was one of the um, cries and issues of the Reformation in underlining the fact that in, a, in, in order to be saved, in order to receive our salvation, we do not contribute in any way. We are fallen sinners. We are outside of, a, we, are, we are in a broken covenantal relationship with God, and it's only through the only mediator, Jesus Christ, who through his grace alone, received by faith alone, he reconciles us to the Father. We are recipients of this gift, receivers of this gift. We are not makers, contributors. We are on the receiving end. And then, of course, once we receive that gift, we, are, we respond to it in a life of service, gratitude, and thankfulness. But we do not contribute in any way in order to receive it. That was what grace alone mean, meant and still means. 
And for the Catholic Church to say, by grace alone we are accepted by God, in 1999, is a significant statement. Now, the Council of Trent, five centuries ago, was the official response and reaction uh, against the Protestant Reformation. It took the Catholic Church more than 45 years in order to understand what was going on there. Luther nailed his 95 Theses in 1517, but the Council of Trent began its proceedings in its meetings in 1545. So it took many years for the Catholic Church to wrestle with what was happening and to begin to respond officially. From 1545 to 1563, the Council of Trent tried to respond to the Reformation and basically concentrated its response on the issue of justification by faith, rejecting the belief that we are saved by grace alone and endorsing the belief that we are saved by grace, but grace demanding our works as a way to contribute to the reception of grace itself. Grace, according to Trent, is received through the sacraments of the church and is unfolded through the works of the religious person. So that grace is thought of, thought of as being the initial push that God gives to the sinner in order to initiate the journey of salvation, which eventually needs religious works to move it on towards its final end, which perhaps will result in salvation. Needing to go through, after dying, a time of purification in purgatory in order to be purified from the residual existing sins before entering heaven. And so Trent committed to a view whereby grace is the initial grace that God gives through the sacraments, basically through baptism. The idea, the Catholic idea of Trent is that a baby is born, he or she receives the sacrament of baptism, which takes away the original sin, and then the church gives this person God's grace through the pattern of the six left sacraments. So the first one is baptism, then there is confirmation, then there is the Eucharist, then there is confession, then there is marriage for those who are called to be married, then there is the religious order for those who are called to serve the church in a special way, and then there is the extreme anointing before you die. The church carries you through the journey of life, dispensing instances of God's grace in order for this journey to move on. And along the way, if you don't contribute with your own works, this journey will stop. So works 
are not the only agent of salvation, but are seen as a cooperative necessary agent in cooperation, in synergistic cooperation with God's grace. God's grace is the initial push. But then if you don't move on in your religious life doing, performing good works, God's grace will not be enough. It will punctuate your life through the sacramental life of the church, but in between the sacraments, you need to move forward with your works. Otherwise, you will not get there to be saved. I often use the illustration of when I was a child, and perhaps that also applies to you. How did you learn to bike your bicycle? I remember that my father, after giving me a bicycle, he put me on the bicycle and he said, now I'll, I'll stand behind you and I will push you and I'll run after you for 10 meters, 15 yards, and then you have to move your legs, otherwise you will fall. Make sure that you move your legs. I'll give you the initial push, but then you have to move, you have to learn to move your own legs and uh, move forward on your, on your strengths. And this is what I did. My father pushed me, he ran with me for a, for a certain distance, and then he said, now you go. And then I had to bike myself. And occasionally, poof, I, I fell. And I had to go back to the bicycle and again and again. So that's the Catholic view endorsed by Trent. God gives you this initial push. But then if you don't work your own salvation, if you don't perform, if you don't do <clears throat> the processions, the, you pray the rosaries, you go to pilgrimages, you do, you respect the, the precepts, uh, precepts of the church and so on and so forth, you don't deserve, you don't move forward, you stop. And so you will never reach to the point of being saved. Whereas according to the Bible, the teaching of the Bible that the reformers rediscovered or reappreciated, the gift of salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end. God gives you this gift of salvation. It is entirely dependent on the work of Christ, on the definitive and accomplished work of Christ. And it is on that ground that those who receive it are saved. Of course, they are moved to respond in obedience and faith and service. That's part of the natural outworking of receiving the gift of salvation. But that outworking doesn't count on your meriting, deserving the gift. It's, an, it's a response. It's a way of responding to a gift that is given to you by God through by God the Father through His Son, by the Spirit. And so it is not a synergistic cooperation between what God does and what you do that eventually leads you to be saved. It's a gift that you received that moves you on, not in order to receive something, but in order to serve.
serve and to appreciate what you have received from God. Now, in 1999, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation, they signed this statement, by grace alone we are accepted by God. Now, going back to the first talk, whenever we encounter a biblical or word like grace, we always have to think that the meaning of this word is not univocal. Technically speaking, univocal means there is only one meaning. Universal, defined, stable meaning. Grace is one of those terms who can mean everything and, the con and its contrary. It can mean anything and everything and nothing. So, don't be impressed when you read an ecumenical statement, when you read an ecumenical text, when you hear pe religious people talking about religious language or even Christian language, don't be impressed by the mere wording of things, the mere sounds of things. Try to understand what is the content they're saying, because they may say words they may appear sound words, but are full of poison. So, by grace alone, what does it mean? According to the Catholic Church, grace is always, as we said earlier, sacramental grace. That is, it, it is not something that God gives sovereignly and directly through the Son, by His Spirit. It is something that God bestows and gives out through the channeling of the mediatorship of the church, through the channels of the church and its sacraments. So we are not talking about grace in the biblical sense. We are still talking about mediated grace through the agency of the church. And in Catholic terms, it is right to affirm that they believe that by grace alone we are accepted by God. Because grace, according to Trent and also this declaration, is always sacramental grace. Grace is always, as always an inbuilt ecclesiastical or ecclesial significance. Grace is always given through the church can never be grace alone in Catholic teaching because the definition of grace has to do with the way in which the church imparts God's grace. So when the Catholic Church speaks about grace alone, it still speaks about the grace received at baptism by a sacrament. Now, you have heard me talking about, earlier on, about the post-Vatican II setting and the difference that Vatican II has uh, made in Catholic teaching and practice as far as this embracing view of grace. What about those? How can they reconcile this view of sacramental grace with the fact that most people on planet Earth are not baptized? Muslims, Hindus, 
secular people. They're not baptized. So how can this view of sacramental grace can apply to our world and how can the Catholic Church believe what I've tried to explain earlier on in terms of this series of concentric circles. Centuries ago, the Catholic Church developed the doctrine of baptism of desire. Baptism of desire. That is the view whereby if a person desiring to be baptized could not have been baptized for difficult circumstances or exceptional circumstances. He was perhaps on his own in the desert without any water. No one around him. You know, a lost person in the desert, dying, desiring to be baptized, not being able to receive it. How could it be possible for this person not to receive sacramental grace. And so, this doctrine of the sacrament of baptism, sacrament, sac, desire, baptism of desire, sorry, the doctrine of baptism of desire was developed. If a person desires to be baptized and there are, there are no possibilities for him or her to be baptized, that desire for baptism works as if baptism would be applied. Okay? Now, they are stretching this doctrine to allowing it to become the framework in which they can think about this post-Vatican II reality. Follow me for a moment. If we, for, 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 as human beings, if we are already in a state of grace, whether or not we know it, whether or not we accept it, whether or not we agree with it, that's Vatican II. Everybody, in one way or another, circles around God's grace in different, at different distances, with different measures, with different intensities, but everyone circles around God's grace. If God's grace is something that defines who we are, our humanity, of course, in one way or another, who we are desires to be baptized. Whether or not we are conscious of it, whether or not we agree with it, whether or not we want it. It is the fact that we are human beings and therefore in a state of grace that pushes us towards the desire of baptism. Whether or not we term it this way, whether or not we define it this way, it is something that is inherent in us that desires sacramental grace. Even though we don't, we're not aware of it, even if you go around this place and you ask, the persons you meet, you say, do you want, do you desire for baptism? You say, I don't know what, what baptism is. I, I don't know. I don't care. But 
The doctrine says, if there is a desire for baptism, sacramental grace is applied. Now, applying it to this post-Vatican II theology, if all of us are already somehow shaped by grace, in one way or another, the desire for baptism is there. And so that, that is the way in which they go around the reality of different religions around the world. Not necessarily those people who are not sacramentally baptized will not, are, do not receive sacramental grace. Because being the human beings we are, somehow we ought, we must desire baptism. And so the sacramental grace inherent in baptism is applied also to those who are not sacramentally, physically baptized. Do you see how it works? So sacramental grace is always related to the word grace in Catholic, in Catholic theology. So there is no sense of grace alone. When the reformers spoke about grace alone, they, they spoke about God's gift given to us in Christ alone and received by faith. Whereas in Catholic understanding, both pre- and post-Vatican II, there is a sense in which this grace needs to be mediated by the church or through this inherent sense of transcendence that defines us and making us desiring sacramental grace. But then there is also another point to be made. When the Catholic Church speaks of grace, it speaks of grace as only the first state of the justified person. According to Trent, this, this sacramental grace received at baptism only defines the first state of a saved person. But that the same person has to go through the ongoing journey of his salvation and that grace of baptism, if not followed by religious works punctuated by instances of sacramental grace, will not suffice for that person to be saved. And so, even from this point of view, grace alone only applies in Catholic theology to the very first instance, to the very first state of the justified person. That is, the baby who is born and is baptized. He or she receives this initial instance of sacramental grace. And that, of course, is not something that he or she deserves or he or she works for it. He or she receives it from and by the church through the sacrament. That is what is meant grace alone in Catholic theology. It is something that God gives you through the church when you are baptized as an infant. But then, if you move on, 
that it's no longer by grace alone. You have to contribute, still going through the, the sacramental system. But that grace alone stops of being alone and always implies grace plus works plus sacraments. So most people, when they read uh, section paragraph 15 of this joint declaration, they say, the Catholic Church is now committing itself to grace alone. Praise God. They have, under, they have endorsed the reformers' teaching. They have endorsed the biblical teaching. Praise God. But you have to understand what they're meaning. You have to understand what they're saying. They're using the words. They are masters at using words. But we have to be intelligent enough and careful enough to understand what they are saying. Using the same word doesn't necessarily mean saying the same thing. You often, we often hear two people talking a similar language but speaking different worlds. And this is the case in much of ecumenical theology. Using the same language, implying that we are saying the same things, but if you do a bit of study, if you, if you not, not necessarily read, read between the lines, but just if you are fair to what they are saying, if you are fair to what they intend to say, you have to be aware that we are still talking very different languages. Maybe using the same language, using the same words, and now even the same adverbs, alone, grace alone. And this phrase, if you take this phrase out of context, and many, even many evangelical leaders are taking this phrase out of context, and they say, look, the Catholic Church is committed to grace alone. This is an official document saying, by grace alone, we are accepted by God. Praise God, the Reformation is over. And we have to say, wait a minute. This is standard, basic, average, hermeneutical exercise. That is reading exercise. You're taking this phrase, what is the context? Oh. I haven't thought about this. I've just used the phrase, taking them, it out of context. The context speaks about sacramental grace, the grace that you receive through the church. So for them, grace alone needs to mean grace imparted by the church. And it's alone because it is given to the child that cannot do anything. It's alone in that sense. A child cannot do anything apart from receiving baptism. And it applies only to that first state of justification. But if you think about the whole process of justification, as even the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification speaks about, you understand that we are not talking about the end result or the whole doctrine of justification. We're just talking about the initial beginning of sacramental life. And it is appropriate for the Catholic Church to use this language without changing its views. It is 
our task to understand what they are saying in order to be fair to what they believe instead of being attracted by what this phrase seems to mean but doesn't really mean. So <clears throat> the, the language has become more blurred and confused. It is quite simple to see the difference between what the reformers reaffirmed in the 16th century and what the Council of Trent reacted against 50, 40, 50 years later. It is quite easier to see the difference. Grace alone, no. Grace plus works plus sacraments. These are, it is simpler to see the difference. Now in our post-Vatican II ecumenical setting, everybody seems to use the same language. Grace alone. And yet, the issues are still there. Sure. So, um, mortal sin is the level of sin that, com that kills the grace of justification. Yes. So, here we have somebody who has a desire to be baptized, though they don't know it. Have they received, therefore, the grace of justification? And if that is the case, what would be mortal sin in those people who are further away from the center of the circle? Did anybody follow me? I'm not even sure if I followed myself. <laughs> Did you follow me? Yeah, yeah, I think I, think I, I follow you. Yeah, that's right. Now, <clears throat> mortal sin is defined as a tragic sin committed with consent and full awareness. Now, if it is very difficult to have all these three elements together. Now, the, the post-Vatican II approach to the mortal sin issue is that ultimately no one is fully aware of what he's doing and ultimately no one fully is fully consenting or giving cons full consent to what he's doing. There is a degree of flexibility, a degree of gray area which uh, uh, makes the church refraining from easily condemning people and labeling things as mortal sins. And one, one example would be the present day very uh, intense discussions that are taking place within the Catholic Church with regards to the issue of divorce and the issue of whether or not readmitting divorced people into the Eucharistic table. And uh, the Pope himself in this post-synodical uh, exhortation, uh, Amoris Letizia, the joy of love, uh, when he speaks about the divorced people uh, desiring to be received back into Eucharistic fellowship, he says that who knows how much uh, aware they were when they divorced? Who knows uh, if they fully um, consented or they were fully uh, endorsing what they were doing? In other words, many of our actions are done without fully awareness, full awareness. And so that applies to moral theology as 
relaxing the category of mortal sin. Still being there, but actually it is more and more difficult to consider it as an actual sin. And so if this is the case, even those who are, have received the baptism of desire and do not have any sense of uh, God's grace, the gospel, and so on, who can be sure whether or not they have fully understood what they have done? Is there not a degree of uncertainty? Is there not a degree? And here, here is where it comes the, the, uh, the papal insistence on mercy. Mercy covers it all. Mercy is the way in which these gray areas of life are enveloped, embraced into this compassion that doesn't really account for the gravity of sin, but soon covers it with this embracing love. Mercy is the response of the church, and it fits this picture of this uh, series of concentric circles, because without mercy, you end up in, in, in all kinds of problems, dogmatic, pastoral, missional problems, whereas mercy helps the system to uh, to move forward without self-questioning it, but without even, uh, yeah, without, self, without a serious self-questioning and actually reinform, uh, reaffirming it and giving it a new direction. So what do, we, what do you think we should make of Pope Francis now? Knowing his uh, Jesuit background, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, it's um, we should love him. <laughs> we should love him as Jesus uh, tells us to love. Uh, but we should be aware. I think this is the you know before Vatican II, it was easier to um, to deal with the Catholic Church because the, their teachings were uh, more black and white and their attitude was normally uh, confrontational. In a way, it was easier because the, the, battle, or the, the battleground, the ground was clearer. There were black and white issues, black and white positions, whereas Vatican II has made everything gray. Fifty shades of gray. <laughs> and so if we don't, if you are not rooted in God's word, everything will appear gray, indistinct. Uh, and now the attitude is no longer confrontational, but friendly and embracing. And so if the things are blurred, and the people who embody these things are coming to you, wanting to embrace you, you have a more difficult job to do. To still love and keep on loving, but to try to understand what is at stake and not to be impressed by this warm, apparently warm attitude but still maintaining gospel standards as pivotal. And being kind and loving, 
but not being persuaded by this uh, misconceived and false theology of mercy.